Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is a show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talked to Simon Taylor, the co-founder and CEO of Haiku, a data protection as a service company for on-prem, cloud, and SaaS applications. In 2016, Simon was at a Las Vegas steakhouse when he bumped into Goran, an engineer from his past. They got talking about what Goran was working on and the state of outdated data protection solutions. Initially, Simon was uninterested in data protection. He found it rather unexciting. But by the end of the night, the idea of building a modern Uber for data protection had sparked his enthusiasm. The duo assembled a team of engineers to design a platform that could handle on-prem cloud and SaaS applications, which one engineer had told them was impossible. Eventually, the team overcame the big technical issues, but marketing and sales proved to be incredibly challenging. Early on, Simon had people doing cold calling to generate leads, but soon realized this would undermine their brand's perception and trust. Convincing potential customers to take a chance on their fledgling startup instead of established competitors was also an uphill battle. And getting their messaging right was also difficult. Simon had to rethink how they were compared to legacy data protection companies by focusing on simplicity instead of technical details. But taking this totally different approach from the norm made getting traction really tough in those early days. However, today, Haiku protects over 4,000 customers across 78 countries. They've grown to 300 employees, generating eight figures in ARR, and have raised $140 million. In this episode, you'll learn how Simon overcame the challenges of positioning Haiku as a better choice against well-established legacy data protection solutions, what lessons Simon's learned about the power of partnerships and what you should and shouldn't do to build successful partnerships, how Simon's boldness and persistence were crucial in securing a major partnership despite having to wait a year to get a meeting. We also talk about the insights Simon's learned about content marketing that provides real value and education rather than just promoting your product, and how a recent partnership with Anthropic has become a significant AI advantage, allowing them to integrate new partners in record time. So I hope you enjoy it. Is your team struggling with spreadsheets that can't keep up with your workflows? It's time to switch to Jotform Tables. Jotform Tables is an all-in-one workspace that lets you collect, organize, and manage data seamlessly. Not only can you create online forms to gather data directly in Jotform Tables, but it also serves as a powerful tool to manage and analyze the data collected from your existing Jotform forms. You can also import spreadsheets or enter information manually, and all your data is stored securely in one place. Jotform Tables makes collaboration a breeze. You can share your tables with a single click and work with your team in real time. Say goodbye to version control issues and hello to efficient teamwork. Get started with Jotform tables for free today at sasclub.io slash jotform. That's sasclub.io slash jotform. Are you looking to sell your online business or buy one to start your entrepreneurial journey? Discover exciting opportunities with bupos.com. Bupos is the number one platform for buying and selling profitable online businesses and the first to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers. At bupos.com, you can explore their exclusive listings, browse listings from other marketplaces, or submit your own deal for approval. Bupos can offer pre-approved financing for recurring revenue businesses, allowing you to access fast funding with no personal guarantees. And their experienced M&A advisory team supports you every step of the way. To learn more, 
visit sasclub.io slash bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to sell your business or find your next deal. Hey, are you struggling to grow your SaaS business? As a SaaS founder, you know that having the right tools is crucial for growing your SaaS business effectively. But with so many options, choosing the best ones for your needs can be overwhelming. That's where the SaaS toolkit comes in. This handy guide covers the 12 essential types of tools you need to supercharge your growth. Inside, you'll find a detailed look at tools successful SaaS startups have used to scale to seven figures and beyond. It gives you specific examples and makes practical recommendations to help you choose the right tools for your SaaS business. Don't miss out. Visit thesastoolkit.com to download your free copy and unlock faster growth for your SaaS business. That's thesastoolkit.com. Simon, welcome to the show. Omar, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Do you have a favorite quote? Something that inspires or motivates you that you can share with us? You know, Ernest Hemingway once said, live on a knife's edge until you're 30 and then spend the rest of your life writing about it. And uh, that one's always kind of stayed with me. I thought it, it speaks to how you can live sharp and try anything until you're 30. And then after 30, you know, go get it done. Go make something happen. I watched that, um, there was a PBS, I think, documentary about Hemingway uh, a while back. Man, that, that, that guy. He's a beast. Total beast. Really inspirational. He, he was like, you know, hey, I'm going to go write a book about war. Let me go into a war. You know, <laughs> totally different level. All right, Haiku, tell us about uh, what does the product do? Who's it for? And what's the main problem you're helping to solve? So Haiku is the world's fastest growing data protection as a service company. And we say that we are de-risking innovation because effectively today, the average company has, over, has their data in over 212 different data silos. It makes it incredibly hard to know if you're protected and how to recover your data in the case of accidental deletion, loss, or even a ransomware attack. We've developed the only unified platform that protects data on-prem, in the public cloud, and across the entire SaaS universe. And we actually use generative AI technology to ensure that the 30,000 SaaS services across the entire world can be recovered in the event of a ransomware attack. We're going to talk about the, the generative AI because that's a recent partnership that you just announced. I think that's super, super interesting. Give us a sense of the size of the business. Where are you in terms of revenue, size of team, customers, how much you've raised? So, so, you know, Haiku was founded in April of 2018. And today I'm very proud to say, Omar, we have over 4,000 customers in 78 countries across the world. Um, and our NPS score is actually a 91, which is, I think is a statistic that doesn't get the same sort of oomph as a huge customer count, et cetera. But for me, it's the most valuable. Because it means that 90% of our customers, 90 plus percent of our customers are ranking us a 10 out of 10, are saying they would absolutely recommend Haiku to a friend uh, or someone they trust. And to me, that is the genesis of how you build great business, is by ensuring that you're delivering true customer satisfaction and value at every turn. So 4,000 customers, 78 countries, been around since April 2018, have about 300 people in the company. Uh, and we've raised about $140 million to date from Bain Capital, A-Crew, Cisco Ventures, Okta Ventures, Atlassian Ventures. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. We've, we've really been able to grow fast and furiously and still keep the same timeless tradition we have here at Haiku of driving our business along three core values, which are authenticity, grit, and empathy. 
Uh, we call it better with age, A-G-E, authenticity, grit, and empathy. And I think that's an easy thing to master when you're five people, 10 people. It's a lot harder as you get into the hundreds and you start to add thousands of customers. Uh, I'm very proud of the business we've built and the people who work here. Awesome. Before we talk about the story and where the idea for this business came from, let's just talk about the name. Now, when we say haiku, we're not talking about the H-I- H-A-I-K-U. We're talking about H-Y-C-U. <laughs> but there are some similarities, right? Maybe you want to tell us about that. No, there 100% are. I, I, ever since I was a young kid, I always liked to name things. Um, you know, if I, if I had a group of friends when I was 10 years old, I had to come up with an acronym for the group of friends. It was always sort of my thing. When I thought about, you know, building Haiku, when I thought about building a business that was really designed to take all of the data in the world and make it simple, safe, and accessible, I thought about a Haiku poem. And I thought about the fact that with a Haiku poem, what you're doing, you're taking all the data in a language and you're condensing it into a small, elegant package, Right. And I sort of said, that's us. You know, that's what we are. We are a haiku in the technology sense. And, you know, obviously we couldn't get the haiku URL. So I had to think about a different spelling. And so I said, okay, if haiku was an acronym, you know, what are we? What do we do? And what we do is hybrid cloud uptime. We help hybrid cloud users stay up and running. So H-Y-C-U, hybrid cloud uptime, became our spelling of haiku. Love it. Love it. All right. So let, let's talk about like where the idea came from. So the business has been going since uh, 2018. Before that, like, what were you doing and, and how did you come up with the idea? Yeah. You, you know, it's, it's a funny story. I, um, I had sold my previous business to Citrix uh, and it was probably, I don't know, 2016, 17, something like that. And, you know, when you're in your mid thirties and you sell like, your first company, you're excited and you go and have a party and celebrate. And I went and did that in Las Vegas. And uh, I was in Vegas and celebrating and I ran into an engineer, uh, an architect that I had known in my first company that had sold years prior. And so I'm standing at this bar and I looked at this guy, I saw this bald head at the bar and I said, my God, that's Goran Gorebski. And I went up to him and I said, Goran, man, I haven't seen you in ages. What are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm an architect for a data protection company. And I said, you mean backup? I said, oof, that's terrible. I'm sorry. And he said, what do you mean? What you're sorry? And I said, I said, you know, that's that's kind of the, you know, it's not it's not the coolest business around. I mean, it's one of those everyone has to have it, but nobody really wants it kind of things. And he said, well, you're in the monitoring space, Simon. It's not like you're, uh, you know, running a running a running a band or something. And so we had a laugh about that. And then he said to me, you know, but really, Simon, data protection is so important. Why don't you see that? And I said, you know, it's one of these, again, everyone needs it, but nobody really wants to have it. They don't care about it. And he said to me, and I'll never forget this. He said, Simon, how did you get here today? Did you take a taxi? And I said, no, I took an Uber. And he said, aha, but there's no Uber in data protection. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, look, just like a data protection, just like backing up data, it's like a taxi. Everyone needs it. Nobody wants to get in a taxi. They smell bad. They're hard to locate. They're a pain. They're difficult. They only take cash, et cetera, et cetera. He said, you know, if I have it, if I get it right, one day I will build the Uber of data protection. And so we sat down at dinner that night in Las Vegas. I realized, of course, I'd sold my company, so I actually didn't have a job. 
And uh, we sat down at the Gordon Ramsay Steakhouse and we started talking about what it would take to actually disrupt the data protection market. And, you know, we, we sort of, we, we tiered it into two distinct problem sets. The first was the sassification of backup. This idea that data protection software always, you know, the old school stuff, the legacy providers, man, you need Accenture to come in and install that stuff. It's old, it's legacy, it's duct tape and wires and glue. We said, this should be a simple SaaS platform that you just turn on and it works. That was easy. The second problem set was much harder because what we realized is that data today is not just in one place. Data today is in literally in 30,000 different SaaS services. And we decided that we had to build a, pro uh, a platform that was gonna provide an equivalent level of data protection support across on-premises, public cloud, and SaaS services. And we've spent the last five years doing that. Wow, great story. All right, so I've been uh, involved in conversations like that where you're, you're at dinner with somebody and you, you get this idea and the napkin out and you're drawing these things of what you could go and go do. And most of the times it's like, yeah, let's stay in touch. And it goes nowhere. So what happened with you guys? What did you do like differently that, that got you started here? So, so I actually, I, I left this part out because it almost sounds too good to be true, but I'll, I'll, now that you've asked this follow-up question, I'm gonna answer it. I, I was very much excited about this idea and wasn't sure though, would it really go anywhere? Because like you, Omar, you know, I, I get the same, you know, we have a lot of these calls, conversations, you meet great people. It was fun, it was exciting. You know, we'd had some wine, you know, you never really know. Well, we, we got the bill and no sooner had I paid the bill than streamers and balloons fell out of the ceiling of the Gordon Ramsay Steakhouse. And they announced that we were the 10,000th customer at the restaurant. No way. Yes, way. Wow. And they brought over signed cookbooks and they were taking our picture and Gordon and I were hugging. And I remember him looking at me and he said, if this is not destiny, I don't know what is. You know, and so of course, this story I think actually had this dual effect of feeling feeling very fateful, and at the same time, I was telling the story to everybody because it, it was such an interesting story, uh, and I think it became a self fulfilling prophecy. But the thing that really made it happen was we took a very big risk. We put in some money uh, with a third partner that we had at the time, and we flew a whole bunch of engineers to Costa Rica. This seemed crazy. We didn't have a company. We, did, we had an idea. We flew them to Costa Rica. We put them in a room, very hot room. I remember the air conditioning was broken. And uh, we said, beach outside. We can all go swimming the, day, the moment that we solve these two problems. How do we sassify data protection? And how do we provide an equivalent level of data protection support across on-prem, public cloud, and SaaS? And the act of putting a little bit of our own money into it and bringing people together in Costa Rica it created this sort of first spark of this can be something, right? We're already in now, right? And it's sort of, it's sort of the more I think you, you create, you, you sort of push the rock up the hill, push the rock up the hill. But once you've started pushing up the hill, it's like going to the gym. I don't love going to the gym, clearly. But, you know, when I go once, twice, three times, what starts to happen is I say, well, I don't want to screw it up this time, right? And so I think, I think a startup is very similar. You start that cycle, that, that sort of muscle burn, and you invest in it, your time, your resources, your blood, sweat, and tears, and pretty soon it takes hold of you, and then you're really going for a great ride. So how far did you get in Costa Rica? Like, 
did you guys like ending up end up kind of building some kind of prototype or at least kind of you know some kind of you know architecture in terms of how you're going to go and solve this problem i i would say there were two major revelations that occurred in costa rica one was that the backup and recovery space was so old and so legacy that even very normal terms like SaaS were so divorced from the, the entire industry that people didn't want to use them. They kept saying, you can't say SaaS, data protection. You can't say it. It's just not done. And so what do you mean it's not done? <laughs> it's not a fashion show. You know, what are you talking about? But people were so stayed in their thinking. And so I think revelation one was this was going to be a true disruption. We were going to have to go at this problem completely differently and really start to tell people, hey, what worked on-prem, what worked in your data center when you had boxes and dusty storage bins and tape drives doesn't work in cloud and SaaS. So I think from a messaging perspective, that started to happen. The second thing we realized was that, I'll never forget this, I asked the question, how do you create one platform that provides equal levels of backup and recovery support in your data center, in the cloud? and across SaaS services. And everyone just kind of sat there for five minutes. And I said, come on, whoever, whoever answers the question can go swimming right now. And this guy in the back of the room, and he says, he, he raises his hand, he says, it can't be done. And I wrote, it can't be done on the board. And it was the best thing he could have said, Omar, because by saying it can't be done, it forced a room full of brilliant engineers to want to challenge him. And immediately the ideas started picking up that sort of, you know, you can't do this actually acted as a way of propelling ingenuity and innovation. And ultimately we came up with a very simple solution, which was to build microservices for each site and then up-level all the data using an abstraction layer under a single pane of glass. We effectively built our platform backwards with the services first and the single pane of glass last. And that ultimately led to us becoming the only extensible architecture in the entire industry. And it was all because one smart, brave guy said, it can't be done. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, when I was looking at uh, the Haiku website, I was trying to get it, like, it, I was trying to get my head around it. Like, how does this thing work? Like, backing up SaaS products, I can probably think about, okay, you can build integrations or something and figure out how to do those backups. But then when you was, you know, I looked at it and was like, oh, you do on-prem as well. Oh, you do the infrastructure, you do these other. Then I was like, whoa, like how does this happen? And so I can understand like it's a really complicated problem to solve, but it also sounds like a really complicated problem or solution to go and sell to people. So. When when you like first of all like how long did it take for you to kind of build build the product or something that you you felt that you could go out and sell and what happened when you went out to the market you know selling data protection the way we built it uh, is like selling a Swiss Army knife versus sell, versus being one of those guys on TV with the knife shows with all those individual knives right um, I think I think what we effectively were saying to the market is. Let, let, let's think about it in a very simple way. Look at your iPhone right now or whatever phone you have, and you've probably got a hundred different apps on it. Imagine if every app had another app that said backup for, for app A, 
And then the next one was backup for app B. And the next one was backup for app C. That would be so annoying. So what do you have instead? You have iCloud backup. You just swipe right or left or whatever it is, turn it green. You turn on your iCloud backup and it backs up all your data. It doesn't just back up one app. The crazy thing to me was that that didn't exist for enterprise. It didn't exist for businesses. There was no swipe right and you're safe. Instead, it was, well, I'm gonna build buy this backup product for this service and buy this backup product for that service. So really all we were saying is, like, let's just, let's just make it as easy as an iPhone. If it can be done there, it should be able to be done here. And you're right in the sense that once we built it, once we, once we figured that out, we would go to these meetings and at first customers would say, well, I, I mean, I've got 12 backup products right now and I'm spending $5 million a year to back up all my data. What on earth makes you think I'm going to believe that I can replace all that with you? and your band of, you know, merry people of that maybe there's 20 of you, right? It, it seems impossible. And so, but what I started telling everybody was, look, I'm not an engineer. And they would say, well, now we really don't trust you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what I always say is, so, so when you're not an engineer, you're not trying to make it smart. You're trying to make it simple. It's the only way my brain will compute the information. And so for me, it wasn't about building the most complicated, intense data protection. It was about building data protection that was simple, accessible, and worked right, and would back up everything. And so, so from a selling perspective, it was all about just leaving it with people and saying, just try it. Try it on three things. You try it on your Google Cloud, try it on your Nutanix, and try it on your Salesforce. And if those three things don't replace anything, then you know we'll take it back. Don't worry. I mean, it's just a service. Turn it on, try it, and see and go. And nine times out of 10, what we realized is, actually, I'll give you a real stat. 50% of the people who tried our product in the first year bought it. It's almost unheard of. In the first year, you, you know, 50%, and these were large enterprises. This was companies like Broadcom. I mean, these were big companies. Um, and, and ultimately, I think, I think that ease of use and that accessibility, you know, really made it what it is. The second question you asked was about how do we actually do this, right? It's, it's all well and good to say we built the Swiss army knife of data protection. And, you know, wouldn't it be great to have an iPhone for your business that uh, allows you to back up all your apps and databases with one single toggle, you know, but doing it was, was rather complicated. And what we ultimately, what I ultimately remembered when we were sort of designing this was the, was the words of an old mentor of mine. And you know, there's a Serbian gentleman named Veselin Yevrosimovic, great guy. He's built, you know, a massive, massive uh, enterprise across Europe. And, you know, he had said to me before I became a CEO, he said, Simon, don't try to be a CEO that is thinking for 10,000 people. You want to be the kind of CEO where 10,000 people are thinking for you. And that always resonated with me. It was kind of an odd comment at the time. But as I became a CEO... I realized you can surprise, sort of surround yourself with sycophants and people who will just say yes all the time, or you can get those really tough people, the really hardcore ones who will say, no, Simon, you're not right about this. We should do it this way. And that makes you better. You want to hire people that are smarter in their various different domains when you're building a business. And I sort of thought, I remembered that. And then I thought, you know, we're faced with a very similar construct with the problem that we're trying to solve which is that there's 30,000 SaaS services in the world. Nobody can actually build backup integrations for all of them. But what if we didn't try? 
What if instead of trying to build 30,000 integrations, we tore the cover off our platform, opened it up as a universal API to all, and let SaaS providers and partners and even customers build those integrations via a low-code development platform? And that's what we built to solve this problem. And I'll tell you, it's, it's gone gangbusters. We now have the largest data protection marketplace of integrations in the world. We're not the largest company in the world, but we've absolutely got the largest uh, marketplace by number of integrations to a factor of 10. I mean, it's pretty incredible what we've been able to build in a short time. Um, and I think, you know, by harnessing the power of the community in a safe and constructive way via our low-code development platform, we've actually been able to uh, become really sort of the de facto standard and leader in the SaaS data protection industry as a whole. So, so rather than you going out and saying, I mean, anybody who's trying to build an integration knows what a pain in the butt it is, right? And so, like, rather than going out and saying, oh, we're, gonna, we're going to multiply this complexity by 30,000 times and spend the next 75 years building these integrations, right? We're going to do it the other way around. Smart. And so, I, I guess, really then, the, the, the work that's involved on your side is just getting, persuading each SaaS company to build the integration and making it as easy as possible for them. And, and Omar, you, you know, it's funny. That's exactly what I thought was going to happen. And unlike, and, and I guess very much like everything in building a business, it never works out the way you expect. What actually started to happen is that we had hundreds and hundreds of partners calling us up, uh, systems integrators, consulting companies saying, whoa, 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 you don't need the SaaS company. We want to build these integrations. Because we want, we're selling those SaaS services and we'd love to monetize the data protection as well. Can we do a rev share? And so we started offering revenue sharing partnerships for any partner that build these integrations. And it just started to speed up faster and faster and faster. And obviously now we've also integrated with Anthropic so that we can leverage artificial intelligence to make that move that process from a three-day development cycle to 36 minutes. Wow. Wow. Okay, we'll talk about that in a second. So I have a question about, you You said one of the ways that you were persuading customers or potential customers was to try the product. And you said, you know, turn it on for a couple of services and, and see what it's like. Now, the, the iCloud analogy in the backup is great, right? From a consumer perspective, Apple's done a beautiful job that it, it's happening in the background. You get a new phone, you turn the iCloud back on and, you know, your apps and your settings are back there. I still remember the days, 10, 20, maybe over 20 years ago, where just because you were doing backups didn't mean that you'd actually be able to do restore those backups, or it was going to be a pain in the, you know, but to, to actually do that. So how did, how did you get them to kind of get confidence with that part as well? Because, you know, it's, it's kind of like one side of the problem, like, yeah, yeah, it's backing up, great. But what happens when, you know, the shit hits the fan? How do they know that it's actually going to work? Yeah. So, so I actually hate the word backup because, because of exactly what you just said. Backup doesn't matter. It's just a very simple form of moving data from one place to another. It's how you recover the data that is always the most important part. And, you know, one of the things that we did here is the low-code development platform opens the API so that you can support the backup. But all of the recovery is done centrally by the Haiku platform. So it's our 
you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of engineering years of expertise in data protection sort of leveraged in a platform that allows you to perform granular recovery across any any source of data on-prem, public cloud, and SaaS. Um, we actually, it was such a versatile architectural design that we were able to patent it because the beauty of our system is that whatever SaaS service you, you decide to back up, you're recovering the data in exactly the same format that it's backed up in. So I'll give you a real life example. Think about Salesforce, right? What do you use Salesforce for? Well, you've got opportunities, you've got leads, you've got contacts. When you recover the data, you don't want it to say file system X3BZ, right? You want to say, I want to recover my opportunities from January 4th. Thank you very much. And so that's exactly what you see. Now, when you go to JIRA to back up JIRA and recover JIRA data, you don't care about opportunities anymore. You care about events, about tickets, right? And you'll see exactly that. So the vernacular that we use in the recovery process is through AI, through generative AI, and a lot of testing and development is actually mapped to the service that it's actually backing up. And that allows us to provide granular recovery across any any SaaS service or any service at all uh, across on-prem public cloud and SaaS that's in the Haiku marketplace. Are you an entrepreneur looking to buy a profitable online business or a founder ready to sell? Bupas is the number one platform for buying and selling profitable online businesses. With their exclusive listings, as well as listings from other marketplaces, and the option to submit your own deal for approval, Bupos has you covered. Plus, they're the first to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers of recurring revenue businesses, allowing you to access fast funding without personal guarantees. And their experienced M&A advisory team supports you every step of the way. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash BUPOS. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to start your entrepreneurial journey or sell your business at the right valuation with BUPOS.com. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. So now I know you went out and you used uh, partners to go and acquire your your initial customers. Mm. Did you initially try to go directly and, and sell? And, and how, how easy or hard was that? You know, I, I actually, I've always been a huge fan of partnerships. Um, two things that I, I care deeply about. One is uh, blue ocean strategy. I love going into markets where nobody else is, but where there's a huge need. And the second is partners. Um, I've always fundamentally believed that you alone can only do so much. The value of exponential growth through partnership is to me the golden ticket. It's the ubiquitous key that allows us to unlock doors that we would never ordinarily have access to. And so in every company that I've built, the only, and this is my third or fourth company now, the, the, the only similarity <laughs> between them, other than that they are all technology-based, is that we built them on partnerships. Um, so, so for me, partners from day one is critical. So how did you do that? How, how do you go about building those partnerships? In, in practice, it sounds, it makes sense. It sounds simple. Is it really as easy as it sounds? No, it's, it's terrifically hard. Uh, <laughs> it's terrifically hard. And I think, I think respectfully, most people do it the wrong way. And the wrong way of building a partnership I'll start with is to show up at the door and say, hey, I'm Simon. I've got the best technology in the world. It's so important and great. You need to see it. Every ear in the building, you know, just, just got covered up. 
and every eye just went blind. <laughs> Nobody cares whatsoever. You know, the best way to start a partnership is to purely think about the person that you're talking to. You do not matter. Your technology, no matter how brilliant it is, how great it is, how long and hard you worked on it, it's completely irrelevant to these people. They don't care about you at all. What you have to do in that first meeting is figure out, figure out really, really intuitively, and hopefully you've done your homework so that you can go into the meeting and you can talk about what matters to them. And it's only if you can talk about what matters to them that you can be successful. And I'll give you, if you'd like, I can give you two real life examples. Of yeah, this. yeah, please. Yep. So, so, all right. So example one, in my second company, um, we were, I told you we were built monitoring software for that connected Citrix and Microsoft. And I remember, you know, going into the Citrix office for the first time. I was, you know, relatively young at the time. And, you know, it was their, their office, luckily, was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So at least it was warm out. And if they kicked me out to the curb, at least I could go, you know, look at the ocean <laughs> or something, uh, have a shrimp cocktail. And uh, I went over there to the Citrix, you know, main headquarters. And I asked to speak to the director of alliances. And um, the director of alliances shockingly was unavailable to a random guy who showed up on the strip <laughs> off the yeah. street and a wonderful lady who ultimately became the VP of alliances, but at this time was not uh, showed up at the door and she said, hi, you know, my name's so-and-so and well, actually I'll tell you her name because she's so wonderful. Her name is Vicky Pomerico. She worked at Citrix for years, uh, probably one of the best alliances people in the business. And I remember Vicky you know, I walked in and she had no idea who I was or what we did. But I said to her, I think that we, I, I know your Microsoft relationship is important to you. And all we do is we build a little bridge between Citrix and Microsoft so that Microsoft users can understand what their Citrix environment looks like. And it wasn't about my technology. It wasn't about how great our monitoring was and how effective it was and how it was better than everybody else's. It was just, you care about your relationship with Microsoft, and I think this will help make that relationship even better. And, you know, um, thanks to that, you know, wonderful lady and that, that initial conversation and all the work after it, you know, we went from zero to 2,000 customers and were ultimately acquired by Citrix. Um, my second example, which is, is not so dissimilar, a little wilder maybe, <laughs> is with Nutanix. You know, Nutanix, you have to understand, five, six years ago was probably, maybe it's even beyond five or six years, maybe five or six years ago, it was really the darling of Silicon Valley. I mean, you talk about rock stars. I mean, Dheeraj Pandey and Sunil Pati. I mean, these guys had built something. They'd invented the category of hyper-converged infrastructure. And I wanted to be the backup product for them. You know, I wanted, I, Haiku originally, you know, I told you all of our ideas about simplicity and everything else uh, and ease of use and, and multi-cloud, but we also wanted to build a partnership with Nutanix because they were HCI. And we thought if we can include them in what we're backing up and recovering, we'll be able to piggyback on their customer base and grow with them. And mm -hmm. nobody else was protecting that data. And so I thought, okay, that's a blue ocean strategy with a hot, cool company I need to go over there and convince those guys to care about us. But I'd never been in the data protection space. Nobody knew that, that who we were or what we were doing. There was no credibility whatsoever. And I remember I thought, okay, I've got to be very memorable. And I went out and I got this white jacket, this very, very bright white jacket. And I put a red carnation in there. 
And I drove up to Nutanix headquarters and I walked in Philip Rovato and I said, I need to speak to the CEO. And uh, they, they brought out this guy, Tommy Gustavuson, who had just joined the company that week. Uh, and, you know, to this day, we laugh about this story. We, we sat down at this table and instead of saying, oh, but I wanted to meet with the CEO because I'm important, right? Uh, I, I immediately thought, of course, they're not going to introduce me to the CEO. They have no idea who I am. Thank God they gave me a meeting. I'm excited about this. <laughs> and I remember sitting with Tommy for two hours and showing him videos and pictures of everything that, you know, I could think of that would get him excited about what we were doing. And then ultimately, it wasn't really going anywhere. Great guy. And he was terrific. But I just, I didn't have it together. I could see I wasn't selling him. And then I said, I had done my homework and I knew there were four or five areas where I thought we could be really helpful. And I said, I'm, look, I'm going to get out of your hair. I'm going to leave. Would you mind checking with somebody in product? If, if, if a company for no charge built one of these four things, which of these would be most important to Nutanix? And he literally picked up this little, I'd scratched out the four things on a piece of paper. He took it back, talked to someone. And the next thing I know, we're sitting with a product person. And the next thing I know, there's somebody else coming in the room. And by the end of the conversation, we had six or seven people. And uh, I think Sunil Potty, the, the CTO, just as a joke, almost walked in just to see what was going on. And we had this wonderful conversation. And it ended with me saying, again, full of bravado, okay, nobody's built you end-to-end -end data protection. You don't know who I am. I'm not going to ask you for anything. But if I come in here a year from now, and I have application-aware data protection for Nutanix, and I can do it within one year. Do you promise me a meeting with all of you to discuss it? And we came in a, a year minus a week later. I walked in the office with my CTO, the same guy I'd met earlier in Vegas, and we showcased that product. And today we've got thousands of new customers who are backing up Nutanix on Haiku. And it was all because... We chose to go in with a partner-first mentality and look for ways we could solve their problems, not show off about our technology. I don't know. I think maybe, <laughs> maybe it was the white suit that did it. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about growth. So we've talked about partnerships and, and how uh, important that they've been to, to helping you acquire customers. What about um, content, content marketing, webinars? That's something that you guys have also done. Can you just explain a little bit about what you did? And what, what are some of the lessons that you've learned from you know, the do's and don'ts? This is the hardest thing, right? Because now we're talking about tactical execution of marketing programs. And I'll just be very honest. If there's anybody listening who's starting a company, you're going to get most of it wrong. I know I certainly did you're going to make a lot of mistakes and you're going to feel like at times nothing works. But I think for me, the biggest lesson learned is that when you stay true to providing customer value, you win. And when you try to make a buck, you lose. And what I mean by that is let's look at webinars. For example, remember what I said about, you know, building those partnerships, Omar, it wasn't about how great our tech was. Yes. Our technology is amazing. I think it's incredible, but Going in to talk to a partner who's bigger and stronger than you and doesn't know who you are and bragging is just a great recipe to get kicked out on the curb, <laughs> right? But instead, I went in and I was talking about them and how I could help and what we could do and 
you know, how it can make their life easier on some level. I think that content marketing has to approach, has to approach the customer with that same ethos in the sense that what you want to do is you want to look at where your customers actually are seeking information and what they really are looking to understand. And then you, instead of going out there and sort of, you know, thinly veiling uh, some knowledge-based, you know, webinar with, you know, a massive product pitch, right? What you really want to do is you want to bring somebody on who has nothing to do with your business or is tangentially, you know, related or topically related, but is not working for you. And you want to have them on the phone or on the webinar actually providing guidance and lessons. And if they, you, you know, if you, if, you, if you do the same thing and you follow up and you also provide knowledge and you use your position as a knowledge leader in your industry to help customers, they're going to figure out where you work. They, they came to the webinar. They know who you are. What they, they're not looking for in those moments is a product pitch. And I think a lot of times we get 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 people on a phone call or webinar. There's an instinct, isn't there? To just go, okay, I got to make a buck. I got to sell. But you got to rein that in and you got to say, you know what? This isn't the time. What we want to do now is actually add value. The more demonstrable you can be with the value you're adding, the more customers and people in general, I think, will trust you in your business. And ultimately, that sets you up for a lifetime of success. So some, some good, good advice there and lessons. When it comes to things like webinars and educating customers i i think there's there's you have to there's a fine line that you have to walk if you want to like like when i when i think about this initially right with like haiku and and data recovery i'm like okay well what are you going to educate customers about without talking about your product right so there's there's this one scenario where you tell them hey this is how you do data recovery and and even though you don't talk about your product, you, you're just kind of explaining how you use your product to do all of these these great things. Or you educate them on something. Like maybe give us an example of what, what a webinar was about and, and how you walk that line where you're educating them without necessarily selling the product because you don't want to educate them and just say, hey, still keep using the 200 different backup solutions that you have in your, your business. No, no. But, but, so I'll give you a great example. Um, Ransomware attacks are legitimately going through the roof right now. It's one every 11 seconds. It might even be one every six seconds, we think. And 52% of those ransomware attacks are occurring through SaaS services, okay? And a majority of them are successful. So just think about that for a second. You've got 200 SaaS services running in your company, and half of ransomware attacks are going to occur through SaaS. And if they happen, they're probably going to succeed. I mean, this is like terrifying. So, so you could, you could run a webinar. So, so let's say that that, you know, that's a problem statement. You choice one would be to run a webinar where you say, look at Haiku. We back up and recover your data. If this happens, you're going to need our product. Okay. I get it. Product pitch. Here's what we did. We invited a gentleman from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, a special agent who was focused on cybersecurity to come and give a talk on why these ransomware attacks were becoming so prevalent, how dangerous they were, and what the federal government recommends you do to protect yourself. And then we said, uh, and then sort of, you know, obviously he 
you spoke highly of Haiku and said, you know, companies like Haiku, but the, the principle of protecting your data across SaaS, on-prem and public cloud is critical, but it's really hard to do. And then afterwards, you know, it's no problem to jump in and say, you know, one way we can help you to simplify that is by turning on this free tool that's going to do this, this, and this. And we've got a free assessment you can take if you go to this website and it's going to help you understand free of charge whether or not you're at risk, right? So, so rather than go, going for the, the dollars, you're going for the value. And because you've got somebody who's not in your business and is certainly not commercial, I mean, it's the government for goodness sakes, you know, they're giving a very honest assessment in a way that people really want to hear. You're educating people. You're making the, you're making the world a safer place. And so I think, again, it's about being authentic. It's about being true to who you are. And it's about being focused on that customer value. I could very easily have said to the team, okay, guys, let's, uh, let's get a bunch of slides. We've got 2,000 people on this webinar. Forget about this guy. You know, let's show them how great Haiku is and you know, make a buck. But you don't do that. You're going to be much more successful if you focus on actually educating your marketplace on how they can get value. Right. And how they can how they can how they can get information, get better at their jobs, get better at their lives, be safer in their lives. Um, so, you know, that's probably one of my best examples of one of the ways that we did that. Yeah, that's not, that's a very good example. Actually, you really I think that was that was an excellent way of it. Just basically what I heard was. You can identify a problem, you you use the the opportunity to educate customers about the problem, why it's an issue, what the risks are, what are the best practices to to protect themselves. And if you can get somebody else to come along who's not associated with your company to educate them, it probably 10x is the credibility of the message that they're hearing as well. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, I, I think you were also doing some cold cold emailing to go and uh, acquire customers uh, or, or or was it how, how much did you do or, or was was everyone just relying on you and the white suit to go out there and and get those customers now look my team gets all the credit I, I've, I've only got one white suit you know gonna drag <laughs> it once in a while um, no, I, I think obviously you go through the plethora of marketing innovations to try to reach customers you're doing emails, you're trying cold calling, you're doing all average, you know, digital ads, et cetera. What I love about this conversation is that it's thematic in the sense that, you know, it, 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 it all comes back to the same principle, which is customer value. Um, and you get a lot of, I think, bad unsolicited advice when you're starting a company, right, about how you've got you've to harass people on LinkedIn and you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you got to have funny, you know, things and you got to, I, I read, a, I read a blog recently where somebody said, you got to kind of insult you people in your email to really get their attention these days. Wow. I, I think all of that is awful. I think it's, I think it's, I think when you're building a brand, which all of you are, like when you're building a company, you're actually building, think of it like, you know, growing a child, right? You, you need to feed it healthy food and, you know, I've got a 10 year old son and you got to make sure you get some sunlight, doesn't have too much screen time. You know, your brand is this living organism. And if your living organism is feeding the world with insults via email and it's not focused on customer value, it's focused on quick wins and transactions, um, it's not going to go anywhere. 
You know, mm-hmm. you you may end up with a quick, you know, product um, tech tuck in acquisition or something, but you're ultimately not going to be able to grow and get the best out of your marketplace. I think what we learned pretty quickly is that when you have honest dialogues via email with customers, and it's hard, you've got to break through and there's success rates and, you know, there are people better, you know, better suited than me to go through all those metrics. But, you know, ultimately what we found when I've looked at emails that drive value, it's the same principles, the webinar, it's the same principles, the partnership. You want to be able to go in there and you want to be able to say, did you know this thing is happening in the world? And let me provide you with something that doesn't cost anything that will educate you, provide you knowledge, make your life a little bit better in this context. It should be topical. It should be focused. So to give a more specific example, you know, we launched a, um, a, a piece of our a functionality within our platform called R-Graph. And, and very simply, you just you turn it on, it, it discovers your environment and draws you a picture of every department and all the SaaS services that are running in it all your services, cloud, on-prem, public cloud, SaaS, et cetera. And it tells you what's protected and what's not. Free of charge, you just turn it on, you go. You know, again, we could have just given it to every salesperson, had them call people. But instead, what we did is we said, you know, 52, again, that same, that same statistic, 52% of ransomware attacks are occurring through SaaS. Do you even know what SaaS services are running in your company? Find out now, Right. And then you, 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 you let them use it. Let them try it. Let them get value. And I think once they get that value, then they're going to come back for more and you can actually have a real conversation with them. Love it. Okay. I, I want to talk about the Anthropic Partnership in a second, but the, I also don't want people to walk away from this thinking this was, this was easy for you in terms of getting to where you are today. You're obviously you're a, you're a serial entrepreneur. You've, you've, you've you know gotten some great traction with this business just give the listeners just a little taste of some of the things that you tried that didn't work cold calling um that i think i think when we first started i had this 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 funny vision in my head or this picture in my head of this big office filled with people on the headsets and they were all dialing for dollars and the money was just rolling in and everything was just going easily because everybody just loves what we do and it all makes sense. And you just keep adding those people and go, blah, blah, blah. and you know, again, the real, the problem, the mistake that I made is I was divorcing my own ethics, my own beliefs around all the things we just talked about from how I thought you were supposed to go to market. And so you hired a bunch of people, you put them in the rows, you have somebody saying, call, call, call. And, you know, very quickly, I realized these people who were just doing activities, they were just performing a function over Mm. and over and over and over again, were actually damaging, you know, the, the customer's understanding of who we were. We were the annoying people on the phone. You know, who likes a telemarketer? <laughs> Nobody, right? I think there are ways you can succeed with cold calling. I'm not saying it's a, it's a terrible practice. But what I'm saying is that my interpretation of it when we first started out was thoroughly wrong. And if anything, it recentered me on stay focused on your core values. Stay focused on adding customer value. You know, and be empathic. Put yourself in the other person's shoes. If you wouldn't mm-hmm. like that phone call, they're not going to like that phone call. Big miss on my part, and you know, frankly, uh, really glad at what the team's doing now, which is always very, very focused on driving customer value. 
Okay, so Anthropic, let's talk about that because that, uh, you know, you've already explained uh, how you do the integrations and how you've made that easier. What What is this recent announcement and, and how does that, why do you consider that to be game-changing? It's a great question. I think artificial intelligence is the buzz term of all buzz terms. Um, and I think the problem with buzzwords and fads, and, and I'm not saying AI is, AI is a fad, but you know, I think anything that's cool in the industry and cool to say and is going to get you press always has the runs the risk of being misused. And you know, I think we're seeing a lot of that with AI. And what mm-hmm. I was noticing actually is that you know there was a lot of pressure for us to put out something a year ago that had AI in the title. And I kept saying to people, and, and luckily again, I've got a very strong team who kept saying to me, "No way, no way, no way, no way." We're not going to have a you know a little bot on our website that just tells you how to get from the homepage to the product page, right? That's just irrelevant. It doesn't add customer value. It's a waste of time. Just so we can say we've got a copilot. You know where where AI became really interesting for us is when we started thinking about the fact that it took three days to build an integration using our low code development platform. There's thirty thousand SaaS services, and that number is growing every day. And even three days was too much. And it suddenly occurred to us that because it was a low-code development platform and because the SaaS services are using APIs, it may be possible to leverage a large language model, a large LLM, a large language model, enrich it with our understanding of data security, data protection, and the industry, and then reduce the development time for those integrations. And so we looked at all the LLMs and we decided that Anthropic was the most advanced when it came to code delivery and code development. And we found that our ability to enrich the Anthropic model in a very concise and focused way, manner worked really well. And so we did that and we, we effectively enriched the Haiku R Cloud platform with generative AI which now reduces the development time for a single integration from three days to 36 minutes. And I think, I think that to me was really exciting because it is quantifiable customer value. It is not just a bot. In fact, we're calling it beyond the bot because you know, it really is taking customers beyond this co-piloting concept that we're seeing kind of pop up on every website into something that is truly innovative and is actually adding substantive value for our customers. Okay, so so if I understood this correctly, so if I'm a SaaS provider, I come along, I, I look at your no-code, low-code environment, and I, I kind of like try to figure out how am I going to build this integration. 36 or three days or whatever, whatever you said, that doesn't sound bad compared to some integration work, right? So what happens? Like now, now basically I can use this, this large language model and the generative AI and it will look at my API and it will tell me what I need to do. You actually just ask it. Um, you, it's called R scout, R dash scout. We love the letter R for resiliency uh, or recovery. You know, we just love the letter R here at Haiku. So it's R scout. And you ask R scout, you say, I want to build an integration between Haiku and this and it's an enriched version. Version. It's an it's a haiku enriched version of Anthropic, Claude two LLM model. And what effectively it will do is then pull up the code, 
and it will tell you, give you precise instructions on how you can copy and paste that into the low-code development platform, which then automates the process of development. Now, I will say this. I do not believe that AI is at a point where it should be deployed without supervision and human intervention. The certification process is the certification process. We will not allow integrations onto our platform unless they've been thoroughly tested by our own team. That is for the safety and sanctity of our own customers, partners, uh, and the world at large. So you're not going to you're not going to plop down some AI code and stick it into our system. What you are able to do though is expedite that platform, and because we're we're simply managing the delta between the SaaS service and the very specific requirements that we have in our own low-code development lab, uh, offering, it becomes a very elegant process to build that integration mm-hmm. and obviously makes it even easier for us to certify as well. Yeah, that, that was one of the things I was thinking. I mean, I think using Claude in, in terms of the, you know, the chat experience, I think it's great. It, I think for, for many, many, many use cases and, you know, I use it a lot for production of this podcast, right? In terms of going back and, looking at transcripts and saying, what did Simon say about that? Or what was that number he mentioned, right? Rather than having to go and manually figure that stuff out. But I also know that Claude has bad days where like, I I might get a good result today. Three days later, I go back and ask the same question. And it's like, what the hell, man? It's like... Again, it's very important to note that this is not Claude you're using. It's Haiku Enriched LLM, uh, which means that we've actually taken it and we've added our own security and focus um, so that it really is providing only haiku accurate data. Uh, it's not able to hallucinate. It's very, right, very right. restricted in what it's actually delivering to you. Right, but at the same time, you still have the the the, the humans basically, you know, verifying this. Yeah, I think that's a great example of 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 you know actually useful AI. Like a lot of the things that you know you you see on like LinkedIn today is like. Hey, use AI to send even more cold emails, right? Use AI to apply for a thousand jobs a day, right? And that doesn't just doesn't feel right. There's like that's not the way forward. But I think this is a really good example of of um, a good good way to use that technology. So I love that. It, it reminds me, Omar, of of remember when the internet was sort of first coming out, and you had these banner ads and pop ups that were so prevalent, right? It was kind of everyone had a pop up and a banner ad. And uh, thank God we moved beyond that period of time. I think AI is becoming similar. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, we should wrap up. Uh, let's get on to the lightning round. I've got uh, seven quick fire questions for you. So if you can just try and answer them as quickly as you can. What's one of the best pieces of business advice you've received? Presentation is everything, uh, which I credit my father for saying to me. It's very true. It's all about presenting. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? Uh, Amp It Up by Frank Slootman. I think he, you know, he built data domains, Snowflake, ServiceNow, really knows what he's talking about. One of the best scale-up books I've ever read. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? Uh, Self-awareness. I think you have to be able to understand where your flaws are and how you can get better. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Reflection at the end of the day, uh, using basic meditation techniques to make sure that I can properly calm down try to instill a little bit of patience in my very impatient mind <laughs> and uh, reflect on, on what went well and what went, didn't go well and what we can do better. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? Um, AI safety, I think, is going to be critical. Um, and I think advocating for, for the safety of artificial intelligence in our world uh, is something that is becoming very important to me. 
What's an interesting or fun fact that most people don't know about you? I am a massive foodie. Uh, every birthday, I go to an, an exotic and interesting chef uh, around the world and try a unique type of food that I've never tried before. Awesome. And finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? World travel. I love experiencing other cultures. I love getting to know other people uh, and really learning about how other people flourish in different societies. Love it. Great. Um, so if people want to learn more about Haiku, they can go to Haiku, that's H-Y-C-U.com. And uh, if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can email me directly at uh, Simon at Haiku.com. Simon, thank you. It's been a blast. Really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thanks for uh, kind of unpacking the last six years and, and uh, sharing some of the lessons and story of, of building this business. One of the more uh, entertaining uh, interviews I've done. Um, so <laughs> it was fun. So yeah, yeah, I appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much. And uh, I wish you and the team the, the best of success. Omar, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. My pleasure. Cheers. Are you still wrestling with rigid spreadsheets that slow down your team? Jotform Tables is a solution you've been looking for. Jotform Tables combines the power of a spreadsheet with the flexibility of a database. You can collect your data through customizable online forms and Jotform Tables automatically organizes and stores all the data submitted through your Jotform forms. You can also import and export files and collaborate with your team effortlessly. All changes are synced in real time, so everyone is always on the same page. But Jotform Tables is more than just a spreadsheet alternative with conditional formatting, data visualization, and more than 250 integrations, it's a complete productivity platform for your team. You can even automate tasks and workflows to save time. Ready to centralize your data, boost your team's efficiency, and take your productivity to new heights? Sign up for free at sasclub.io slash jotform. That's sasclub.io slash jotform. Do you dream of owning a profitable online business or are you looking to sell yours? Bupos.com is the number one platform for entrepreneurs and founders alike. With Bupos, you can discover exclusive listings, browse listings from other marketplaces, or submit your own deal for approval. As the first platform to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers, Bupos makes it easier than ever to acquire a recurring revenue business without personal guarantees. Their experienced M&A advisory team is dedicated to supporting you throughout the process, ensuring a smooth transaction. Don't miss out on this exciting opportunity. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to sell your business or find your next venture. Attention SaaS founders, are you determined to scale your B2B business to that coveted million-dollar ARR milestone? I've got something that can help you get there faster. Introducing the SaaS Club newsletter, your weekly companion on the journey to SaaS success. Packed with proven strategies, practical insights, and exclusive interviews with B2B SaaS founders who've been where you are, this newsletter is your ticket to accelerated growth. Each week, in just five minutes, you'll gain access to a treasure trove of growth tactics, lessons learned, and insider tips to help you navigate the challenges of the early stages and scale your business to seven figures and beyond. So why wait? Become part of a 4,000 plus strong community of SaaS founders and entrepreneurs who are already harnessing these insights to drive their growth. Visit sasclub.io slash newsletter and subscribe to the SaaS Club newsletter today. Gain the support and expertise you need to keep forging ahead on your SaaS journey.